Come on, come on. Okay, everybody. Hey, adults, too. That's awesome. So, y'all ready? Let's pray, okay? Let's fold our hands and close our eyes and bow our heads. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today. We can learn about you, and we can learn from your word, the Bible. We pray that you would make this a great time of being with you, of being with our friends and our teachers. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Okay, this is going to be a little different today. I haven't preached one-handed before. So... You want to get out your sermon outline, and it should say three traps for the king on it. And uh, we're starting a little late, so we're going to move quickly. So I'll be reading the scriptures as we go through. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this great gospel of Matthew to learn about Jesus, and we come to, again, some hard teaching here. We ask that you would give us the grace to understand, and understand that this is hard because we're too much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and not enough like Jesus. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. Open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, when my kids were younger, uh, like many of your children, uh, they were involved in a whole host of activities. And perhaps because they're younger, I remember this happening more with Dan and Sam. They played a lot of sports, baseball, basketball, soccer, lacrosse, uh, wrestling, and so on. And as much as possible, I tried to go to their games and I coached baseball for quite a few years. And uh, when that happens, I'd be off somewhere, you know, Costco or Walmart or someplace like that, and somebody would approach me and say, you must be Sam's dad, or you're Daniel's father. You know, after a while, it begins to irritate you. It even happened once at General Assembly. I went to the exhibit hall, and this guy walked up to me and said, you're Sam Silvernail's dad. I was like, I'm a thousand miles from home. I'm in Dallas, Texas. And after a while, you think, nobody knows my name. You know, all they say is, uh, there's Sam's dad, or uh, look over there, there's Daniel's father. And you hear people referring to you like that. Some of you uh, know what this is like. And after a while, you get irritated. You know, you want to say, I'm not just Daniel's father. I have a name, David. My name is David. Whereupon they say, yeah, that's great, and they introduce you to somebody else. Have you met Sam's dad? (laughs) Well, the good news is that God doesn't have a problem with that. God is absolutely content to be known as Abraham's God, as Isaac's God, as Jacob's God, 
as Sam's God, as Dan's God, and even as Dave's God. God is absolutely content. And we read that over and over again in the scriptures. In Exodus 3, 6, we read, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And of course, that verse is quoted again in our passage for today, Matthew 22, verses 23 through 40. Jesus is facing three verbal traps set for him by his enemies. So let's turn to our text and see how he handles uh, these traps. And the first trap he faces is the trap of the skeptic. The trap of the skeptic. Hopefully that's the first blank there. Uh, I'm waiting for all the errors uh, in the uh, sermon outline. I've discovered typing with one and a half hands. So... The uh, can't quite get the pinky finger to work on the keyboard. So, anyways, we'll start at verse uh, 23. There it says, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. <coughs> but Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. <coughs> so we have a rebuke there. That's in verse 29. But in order to learn from it, we have to figure out who these Sadducees are and what's the point, what's the question about. And the whole thing starts off by saying, verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And the first thing you need to know is that the Sadducees are almost the exact opposite of the Pharisees. Oh no, you say, I can't keep them straight. Just remember, Sadducees, opposite of Pharisees. The Sadducees are this aristocratic, educated, priestly families who inherited the priesthood, and as a result have this place in society of great status and honor and wealth. And although... Uh, they believed in God. They believed in a very stripped-down, non-supernatural version of the faith. They only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in any of the prophetic uh, writings like Isaiah or Daniel or anything like that. They didn't accept them as scripture. So they had this sort of stripped-down, ethical version of the faith. They said, we believe in God, and we believe the purpose of life is to be a good person. They didn't believe, for example, in the coming kingdom of the Messiah who would liberate everything. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in a future judgment day. In Acts 23, for example, this is what Luke says about them. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Pharisees are the opposite. They're very moral. They're very much the opposition of the Sadducees. In fact, now, this is a slight oversimplification, but to put it in modern terms, the Pharisees are the moralistic conservatives and the Sadducees are the relativistic liberals. Okay? 
moralistic conservatives, relativistic liberals. The Pharisees' contingency is among the lower and middle class. They're the conservative moralists. The Sadducees' con constituency is among the wealthy and educated class. They tend to be the liberal relativists. And they really dislike each other. And does any of that sound familiar? We've just changed the labels. The Sadducees, because they don't believe in the afterlife or Judgment Day or resurrection, anything like that, they come to Jesus and they ask a question. And the question's a little difficult when you first read it because it's about an institution that we don't know very much about. Verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is called Leverite marriage. If you think about this, it puts the oldest son in a really hard position. Because all the other brothers want to have a say in who he marries, because if he dies, you know, she comes to him. So it's kind of like it's, you know, a lot of pressure, oldest son. A lot of pressure on that first wife, too. But the reality is this. Moses gave this law as a very merciful provision in the Mosaic law. It comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in ancient, traditional, agrarian, patriarchal cultures, if a woman got married and her husband died before they could have children, she's in a terrible situation. She couldn't just go out and get a job. She has no children to care for her. And if she had been married, it's very unlikely that she's going to get someone else to marry her. So very much she gets abandoned. So therefore, Moses provides a law that says if a man dies and they're childless, his brother or someone else in the family will marry her and keep her in the family. And even if they have children... Any children she has will be considered the children of the older brother. So it's, the reality is it's a very merciful way of dealing with widows, which was a huge problem in the ancient world because most widows were abandoned. And so Moses creates this means to make sure that widows are cared for. So it sounds odd to us, but we live in a very different world today. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that, because the whole institution has nothing to do with the main point of our passage. It basically rolls out, the, the Sadducees roll out this institution of Leverite marriage because they want to present a very hypothetical situation to Jesus, and this is what they use. So they say to Jesus, verse 25, now there are seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So the first brother-in-law marries her, and then he dies. Then another brother marries her, and he dies. And so on and so forth to all seven brothers. Now, we don't know what these people are eating. You know, maybe they're just having a really terrible string of bad luck. The whole point is, it's a hypothetical situation. It's not a real thing. It's designed to make the concept of heaven and the afterlife look stupid and ridiculous and absurd. 
So they say, there's, here's this woman, she dies, she has seven husbands, whose spouse is she? Who's her husband in the resurrection? Now, Matthew's already told us, they don't believe in the resurrection. This is a setup question. It's what we would call a wedge question. And it's called a wedge question because it's designed not just to make the afterlife look stupid, but primarily to make Jesus look stupid. Because if Jesus sort of laughs with them and says, yes, how dumb is that, then all the conservatives who believe in the afterlife are going to reject him. On the other hand, if he tries to give some sort of convoluted argument, well, you know, the first guy's the real husband or the last guy's the real husband, you know, or something like that, all the sophisticated liberal people are going to laugh at him. Either way, he gets discredited, and that's what they're trying to do. They have intentionally presented him with a no-win question in an attempt to trap him, to discredit him. That's the trap of the skeptic. So now we see how Jesus responds. He goes on to show the argument is flawed, but first, before he does anything else, he just smacks him. I love Jesus. This is a verbal slap to the face. Verse 29, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Before he tells him anything about the argument, before he refutes the argument, he, he's, you're just wrong. You're completely wrong. He rebukes them. You don't know the power of God. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So let's think about this. So he seems to be saying to the Sadducees, hey, your premise is in the resurrection there's going to be marriage, but we're not going to have marriage. It's not going to be any marrying. Does that sound exciting to you? It doesn't sound very exciting to me. I'm guessing from a lot of you it doesn't sound very exciting either. What it sounds like is in heaven, we'll just all be friends. See, just think how less complicated heaven's going to be. You know, we'll just all be friends. We'll have all these platonic relationships. You know, you can kind of hear the friends music going. And, you know, we're not going to have marriage, all that sex, all that rapture, all that oneness, all that closure. Oh, no. We're going to heaven where everybody's just going to be friends. How utterly boring. And deep down, you know that's not right. You know, that can't be what he's saying, because verse 29, he says, you don't know the power of God. Sadducees, your problem is you have no idea of the magnitude of the transformation that God's bringing. It means in verse 30, when he says there's no marriage in the resurrection, he can't mean that the future state will have less intense love than we have now. He can't be saying that because he says you don't know the power of God. So let me tell you about the power of God in the resurrection. The love we have with one another and with the Lord, or better put, the love we're going to have with the Lord and all the other lovers of God around his throne is going to make the greatest marriage look like nothing in comparison. The greatest, greatest sense of oneness now will seem like the morning dew compared to the Atlantic Ocean. Jesus says that heaven is a world of love so incredibly powerful it's going to overwhelm 
marriage. Not make it obsolete in a sense that our love lives will be less than marriage. How could that be? No, it's going to be vastly beyond, vastly better. And people say, well, does that mean we're not going to know each other? Is that my spouse doesn't mean anything anymore? Not at all. Because look at who he's talking about. He's talking, uh, he talks about this great relationship that he has right now with Abraham. Abraham's still Abraham, Isaac's still Isaac, Jacob is still Jacob. We will still be ourselves. And yet there's going to be a depth of love and delight that makes the best moment and the best marriage look like nothing in comparison. That's the promise of the future. It takes your best moment and says, you've just gotten a small taste of heaven. Love beyond marriage, not beneath marriage, not below marriage, but infinitely above and beyond. You know, I may be wrong on this, but when Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, he's saying at the resurrection, there'll be no more weddings. There's a lot of dads here, amen. Because uh, they're expensive. The, uh, no more weddings, not because there's no more marriage, because at the resurrection, every believer will already have a spouse. No more single people. No more widowed people. No more divorced people. He is our bridegroom. And he is the way in to the love that we're going to have with the Father and everyone else. And it's why Paul says that marriage is a type, a shadowing of this amazing relationship that Christ has with his church. We're just getting a taste now. Ephesians 5.25, the Apostle Paul tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's why God can put his love on us and make us real, because Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom, and therefore he brings us into this world of amazing love. So that's how Jesus answers the first trap. He says, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. And he answers the trap of the skeptic. But then he moves right into handling the next trap, which is sort of implied uh, here, and that's the trap of the faithless. The trap of the faithless is going to start at verse 29. Because now Jesus shows us how they misread the scripture, makes this incredible case, incredible argument for the reality of a heavenly future, and he does it by going to the Bible. And he says, starting in verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, jumping down to verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So what's he doing? First of all, notice he doesn't go to Isaiah or Daniel, which would be parts of the scripture the Sadducees uh, don't accept. He says, I'll argue this on your own terms, because he goes to the book of Exodus that they do accept. He quotes from Exodus 3. It's a place where God appears to Moses at the burning bush. The Sadducees had already brought up Moses in the first part of the text. So Jesus says, okay, you like Moses? Let's talk about Moses. This is the place where God reveals himself in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And you have to notice something here. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He speaks of them in the present tense. He speaks of his covenant relationship with them in the present tense, even though they've been dead for centuries when he says these words. You see the force of that? Maybe not. And I'll tell you why you may not see the force of that. Because we need to spend a little bit of time understanding the significance of the terminology here. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God says that, it has a lot of weight to it. And here's why. As I already said at the beginning, the good news is that God doesn't have a problem with being known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus, he's telling him, I want an intimate, personal, covenant relationship with you and the people. Of course, he already has a relationship with them. He's the creator, they're the creatures. I send the rain and the sun, you pray to me. It's not like there's not already a relationship. But he says, I want a personal relationship. I want an intimate relationship. I want a covenant relationship. So personal we can use possessive prepositions and pronouns with each other. I just made friends with all the English teachers. You said, what? Okay, we have to stop and think about this. We're very fortunate the English language has a parallel to this. Because otherwise, how do you dare talk about someone else's belonging to you? And whom do you dare use possessive pronouns and prepositions with? You may not know me at all, but if you hear me talking and refer to someone as my Joanne, you're going to assume that's a wife, something like that, right? I mean, how dare we talk about another human being as if they belong to us? And the answer is, in the English language, you're allowed to use possessive pronouns and prepositions when there's been a deep voluntary self-giving, when the relationship is intimate and personal, and like marriage, covenantal. Or like we saw up here, that was an example of covenant relationship with our children. It's why when uh, I give Joanne a card for our 32nd anniversary next month, amen, I'll sign it as I signed the previous 31 cards, always and forever, your David. And God comes and says, when you're in a covenant relationship with me, we talk about each other like this. He says, I am your God. You are my people. Jesus says, when God enters into that kind of covenant relationship with someone, that kind of love relationships with someone, it means that relationship never goes into the past tense. Now think about that. When you love someone, really love someone, whether it's a baby, a child, a friend, a spouse, the greatest horror you have is for that relationship to go into the past tense. Because when you love someone, you don't want that relationship to ever go into the past tense. You don't want anything to come between you. You don't want anything to end it. But you can't help it. Because we're human, and we're limited, and relationships end, and people die. And things happen. And so it becomes past tense. But what if God loves you? 
What if God is the one who's committed to you? What if God is in a possessive relationship of voluntary self-giving? He has given himself to you, and in response, you've given yourself to him. And what that means is something very simple. God can never be the God of the dead. See the force of this? God's not the God of the dead. He is the covenant God. God can never say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God's speaking to Moses, he talks about his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. Because when God puts his love on you, you enter into a relationship with God, a relationship that can never go into the past tense. He'll never lose that which is precious to him. You and I might, but he won't. He can't. I mean, God's love could somehow never be less than ours. Would God's love be less intense? Would it somehow be thinner? If you can't bear to have your relationships go into the past tense now, how could God? So Jesus is saying something very basic but absolutely amazing. The love of Jesus makes you real, eternally real, absolutely permanent. And yes, we know we're passing away. And yes, we know there is someone who's eternal. But if he puts his love on us, we become permanent. We become real. We last forever because our relationship with him lasts forever. And we'll never pass away. John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, do you Believe this. If God loves me at least as much as I love others, then he doesn't want this to ever stop. He doesn't want this to ever get into the past tense. God will never let this go. God cannot be the God of the dead. Slam dunk, that's it. Goodbye, Sadducees. But he's not done. There's one more trap to spring, and that's the trap of the legalist the trap of the legalist, starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, mainly because it could be a whole sermon by itself, but also because I've preached on it several times already in all the parallel passages in Mark and Luke and John. So very quickly, what's happening here? What Jesus does is start off by looking like he's going to answer their question, but what he actually does is subvert the very premise of these religious people who are asking the question. He blows through all the categories that the conservative Pharisees have for morality and the moral law. What he does is to completely redefine the content of the law and completely redefine the motive for keeping the law. He redefines the content, what the law is about, what it's after, and he redefines the motive for keeping the law, why you should do it. So what you should do and why you should do it. And he's saying, first of all, you want to listen very carefully here. You probably want to write this down. 
Love defines what it means to live lawfully. Love defines what it means to live lawfully. But this is just as incredible. It also means the law defines what it means to live lovingly. The law defines what it means to live lovingly. See, he says if the law boils down to love, he's not just saying love is what every law is about. It also means the law defines what it means to be loving. We could give examples of this, go through the Ten Commandments. Uh, They're given to us in the negative, but they all have a positive corollary. So you shall not commit adultery, but the positive is you not only uphold your own marriage, but everybody else's. And... uh, So, in other words, if someone says, you know, don't obey God's law, just do the loving thing. Every single time you disobey God's law, every time you lie, you steal, you cheat, you commit adultery, you break any of God's law, what you're really saying is, I actually know what the loving thing to do is better than God. But God created us. And what God's saying here is incredibly radical. He says, when I say that all the law basically boils down to love God and love others, I'm telling you why God wrote the law. He didn't write the law so you'd have something to do. It's not just busy work. God wrote the law to show you what is the loving thing to do. He wrote the law to show you how to love. And therefore, love defines what it means to act lawfully, And the law defines what it means to act lovingly. So the law is a good thing. It's a positive thing. We are to love the law and delight in the law. It is not a burden, uh, some chore or obligation. And if you can all of a sudden approach the law from that perspective, it changes how you view it. And it makes obeying it a delight. Because it helps you to be loving. And only when you see that do you really begin to understand the content of the law and the motive for obeying it. Because ultimately, the only real motivation for keeping the law, for doing everything that God commands, the only possible source for keeping the law is a heart that's head over heels in love with Jesus. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We just talked about this amazing love that we're going to have in heaven, this hard-to-fathom love that dwarfs even the love of a marriage, and Jesus is saying, let's start practicing that kind of love right now. You see, this completely destroys both the liberal and conservative approach to the law. See, the liberal version is, what you do doesn't matter, God loves everybody. That's too easy. But the conservative version Uh, is God only takes people into heaven who are good. That's also too easy. You know, people who say you can get into heaven only if you obey God aren't really obeying God. They're using God. We've seen, for example, the liberal view, make your own rules, God loves everybody. It's just too simple. But the conservative view, hey, you have to live a really good life, and if you're good enough, he'll let you in. It's also too simple. And here's what we learn. Jesus is attacked by the Sadducees, who are the enemies of the Pharisees, and Jesus rebukes the Sadducees. And then 
Jesus is attacked by the Pharisees, who are the enemies of the Sadducees, and he rebukes the Pharisees. So he basically knocks down both groups. Now, why is this principle that operates in most political situations not holding? What's the principle? Well, the principle is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, or at least the enemy of my enemy is my ally, or my co-belligerent, or something like that. You know, when I see somebody attacking my enemy, I feel good. I cheer for them. But that's not what happens here. What's so intriguing is we all know the Pharisees attack Jesus. They can't stand Jesus. And Jesus attacks the Pharisees. He hates the legalism of the Pharisees terribly. But you also have to see he's attacked by the Sadducees and he rebukes them too. What does this mean? This is extremely important. If you want to understand the gospel, you have to understand this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not derived from any particular human party or philosophy. It's not a form of liberalism. It's not a form of conservatism. And it's nothing halfway in the, in the middle. It's true that the Pharisees attacked Jesus because they smelled a Sadducee, and the Sadducees attacked Jesus because they smelled a Pharisee. But it wasn't because he was in the middle. The Sadducees and the Pharisees both hate Jesus. And it's important understanding the gospel. Why? Because what's the gospel? At least this. God is a God of justice. Sin and evil have inflicted great misery in the world, and God's a God of justice. He can't overlook that. He hates oppression. He hates wickedness. He hates evil. But Jesus Christ has come and satisfied God's justice. Jesus Christ has come and lived a perfect life and died the death we deserve, paying the penalty for our sin in, his, uh, in our place on the cross. And there's a divine bar of justice before whom uh, we all stand. And yet Jesus Christ has so utterly satisfied it that when I believe in Jesus and when I receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, then I am completely accepted on the spot by sheer grace. Now the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both then and now, can't stand the gospel. Because it's not a form of conservatism and it's not a form of liberalism. Both can't stand it. Why? Sadducees don't believe there's a God of justice. They don't believe in a judgment day. They don't believe in a God who punishes. They don't believe in any of that. And the Pharisees didn't believe this. God could be satisfied. But rather through our good works, our moral virtue, we have to do it ourselves. You have to try to satisfy God. So therefore, when the Pharisees listened to Jesus, they thought they smelled a liberal Sadducee. And when the Sadducees listened to Jesus, they thought they smelled a conservative Pharisee. Remember, they hated each other. The conservatives thought they smelled a liberal. Liberals thought they smelled a conservative. And the God of the conservatives, of the Pharisees, is demanding, right? But the God of the gospel is far more demanding than the God of the conservatives because the God of the gospel has a justice that can't be satisfied by anybody but Jesus. You can't live up. The Son of God was more conservative than the conservative God. On the other hand, the Sadducees, the liberal theologians, 
are saying, we believe in a loving God. We believe in a God who accepts everyone. We don't believe in that wrath and, and judgment stuff. The Son of God is more loving than the God of the Sadducees because the biblical God offers up his Son. The biblical God suffered. The biblical God went to the cross. So the Son of God is more conservative than the conservative God and more liberal than the liberal God at the same time. Now, until you see Jesus rebuking both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and being attacked by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you can misunderstand the gospel. You might think the gospel is a particular kind of human philosophy, but it's not. And if you're a Christian, get used to nobody liking you. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too much. Because when you first become a Christian, there's a tendency to accept the gospel because it confirms things that you, uh, you've always believed. If you're kind of a liberal person, you like the gospel because it talks about the poor and the outsider and, and all that kind of thing. On the other hand, if you're a conservative type, you like all that stuff about morality and justice and wrath and guilt. You like that. So when you start to get into Christianity, there's this tendency to say, I believe the gospel because it's just like the things I've always believed. And I want you to know, the more you become like Jesus, the more you actually come to grasp the gospel, the more you come to understand the uniqueness of Christianity, the more you come to realize it's not like anything else. So if you really start to understand the gospel and you really begin to articulate it and live it out, you're going to find, and this is what you need to get used to, is everybody else thinks you're an idiot. Everybody thinks there's something wrong with you. Conservatives don't like how the gospel speaks about justice for the poor. And liberals don't like how it talks about everybody needs to get saved. You have to understand, the Sadducees and the Pharisees both hate Jesus. And it's not because he's in the middle, it's because he's something totally off the chart. And you need to get ready for the fact that you're going to go the rest of your life with people continually misunderstanding you because they're not able to get you into their category. They're continually thinking you're something you're not. Get used to it. Get ready for it. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you're sort of inquiring and exploring and you're checking it out, first, that's okay. There's always people here uh, in every one of our services who are on a spiritual journey. And here's what I want to say to you. Make sure you take time and really listen. And when you hear a sermon or a Bible study or read some book, don't jump too quickly to the conclusion and think, oh, Christianity is just like that. If when you hear the gospel, you immediately like it, you're probably wrong. Because you probably like it because you think it's like something else you already like. On the other hand, you hear the gospel and you immediately hate it, you're probably wrong. Because you hate it because you think it's like something else you already hate. If you get nothing else this morning, I want you to get that the gospel is not like anything else. It takes time to get it. Now, if you're a member uh, here at Potomac Hills, you have a friend you're trying to help uh, come to Christ, be patient. You're asking a lot. So get ready for that and be gentle about it. 
Jesus can look right through a person's heart and talk to people in ways I think that even we can't. Because um, you see, grace is complicated. Because grace says this, first of all, you have to see that you're a sinner. Then secondly, you have to see there's an ultimate sacrifice that all those inadequate sacrifices point to. And finally, you have to see there is only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who really offered the ultimate sacrifice for you. And in that ultimate sacrifice, which makes all the other sacrifices obsolete, we see that the cross is the one place where you can actually see this love life completely and utterly and brilliantly fulfilled. So at that very moment, on the cross, you have the ultimate example of someone who loved God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength and loved his neighbor, including you, more than himself. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And here again, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Lord, forgive us for trying to categorize you. Forgive us for trying to categorize each other. Forgive us for seeing you as a liberal or seeing you as a conservative or even as someone who thinks like we do. Help us to see that love and the law are so totally connected and that keeping the law is an act of love. Help us to understand that Jesus transcends all of our categories and forces us to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. Thank you that he went to the cross as an act of love and laid down his life for his friends, for us on that first and true memorial day. So Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask by your spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they might embrace Jesus. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.